0: Hello everyone and welcome back to SCADcast. Thank you for joining us, I'm Matt Nickley. Today's guest has been many things in his career. A designer, stylist, dealer, curator, collector, TV personality, so many of the paths and opportunities creative students at SCAD admire him for, and take keen note of as they chart their own paths. The multi-hyphenate in question is Cliff Fong whose international experience and deep knowledge of art and design history has gifted him an eye for, to put it incredibly simply, what works. At his LA showroom, Gallery Half, global antiques, fine art, furniture, and decor identify his passion for storied, non-refinished objects. Every piece has character and feels like a treasured find. His interior design firm, Matt Black, has made possible dream residential homes and commercial spaces representing A-list stars, restaurants, and offices. For all his success, he remains entirely himself, humble, knowledgeable, full of care. As much as I admire what he's created and his classic appearances on Ellen, it's Fong's work ethic that I admire most of all. Today's interview comes from the most recent Design Miami exposition in December 2021. Paula Wallace interviewed Fong before a live audience of SCAD alumni, international guests, design dealers, and enthusiasts. All fans of Fong's precise blending of periods and styles, his collector sensibility, and his egoless approach to doing what he loves. Yes, you'll hear a little bit of background noise of the expo buzz, and even a distant fire truck at one point, but the depth of the conversation is what truly fills the air. From SCADCAST, this is On Creativity, a conversation between Paula Wallace and Cliff Fong.
1: Well, you know, I have been wanting to talk to you for a very long time, Do you know, At SCAD, we have over 100 different degree programs, including fashion and interior design. And I know you're expert at both of those. Um, And design can take on so many uh, different forms, like interior design or graphic design or furniture design. But I'm wondering if you could tell the audience how your experiences in fashion and interior design have intersected.
2: Well, so I started working in fashion when I was about 18 or 19 years old. And I was telling somebody earlier that I, I had done just about everything there is to do in that industry from you know being a, a very mediocre model in the beginning, <laughs> um, being a buyer, being a designer, merchandiser. so I, I really I, I really enjoyed the industry a lot and it was it was such a privilege to get to be able to do as much as I did. But at a certain point, I mean if you think about fashion. At, at its highest level of interpretation, it's it's a it's an art and it's a means to communicate. But I, I think oftentimes the business side of it overwhelms those those other two objectives. And if you're working it on the business side, or you can't help acknowledge that that um, business usually has to come first before everything else. So at some point, I just realized that maybe this wasn't sustainable. I mean, certainly it's wonderful being in European capitals around beautiful people eating great food, you know, going to fabulous parties. But that wasn't a way I thought I would ever continue to grow or experience anything better than that. And, and, and in some ways it just felt a little too flimsy for me. So at a certain point, because I had the, the opportunity to be in European capitals all the time, um, instead of buying more clothing, or I, I've never been much of a souvenir person, I started shopping for design. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I bought my first piece um, of mid-century design, French mid-century design. Um, it, w- it was a standard chair by Jean Prouvé, and it was still in francs, and I, I paid 5,000 francs for it, which was about $1,000, which seemed insane at the time. I mean, now you can't purchase one of those for under $20,000, so, so but that obviously wasn't my reason for doing anything. Um, I just felt somehow connected to that work, and, and because I was, anytime I, I became kind of obsessed with that period of design. So every time I would go to Europe ever or anywhere, Scandinavia, I would bring home a piece of design. And I had kind of put together an interesting little presentation at my house, and 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 a friend came over and they saw it. And I one friend asked me and another friend asked me, and as we all kind of grew in our careers, and and some of those friends grew exponentially in their careers, meaning bigger budgets, bigger bigger houses. Some of them I've done projects for. I, I think over the last three years, it could be over two dozen projects. Um, so it seemed like a very natural transition to me. But also, I think in the way that I that I kind of approach my my design work is very similar to how I might approach sort of getting dressed in the morning or or helping someone else get dressed. And and I think I, I use this analogy a lot because I think it helps demystify the the design process a little bit, because I think a lot of people don't know how to look at a room. Can't really see um, how that room might evolve or take shape. And and at one point in my life, I remember a friend of mine who came to my apartment said, oh, you should do this, repaint. And and I didn't have a vision for it at all. I did not know what he was seeing. I couldn't see it. Um, But the more I asked myself to look, the more I thought about, it, I, I really developed kind of an, an interest in, in seeing things a different way. Always, um, however, now I, I feel like I don't want to be that person that always looks at something critically and wants to see it differently. I don't want to be that person that judges everything. Or, and, and you know, there are a lot of wonderful designers who do do that, and they they make a beautiful living at it. But, but I, I only do that when asked or when tasked, you know, mm-hmm. to do so. But, um, sorry, back back to the fashion analogy. I, I think if you think about a rug as a pair of pants, and, and I like really worn, beautiful 19th century textiles, there isn't always the budget to do that, um, so it doesn't have to be that. Sometimes I have to hunt a little more. But to me, that kind of textile is sort of like a great pair of Faded jeans, mm-hmm. and then you can put something on top of it. You can decide who you want to be every day when you're dressing. Do you want a cashmere sweater? Do you want a big hand knit sweater? Do you want a tailored sport coat or a sexy little shift? You know, mm-hmm. but but you can almost put anything on top of a pair of jeans mm-hmm. or a pair of chinos. Um, sometimes you want to dress a room up, and it needs to be a little more tailored. And and some rooms are like tuxedos. Some rooms are like you know casual Fridays and, and some rooms are give you the endless like opportunity for for interpreting your mood or your feeling and it could be daily it could be seasonally, it could be yearly. There are a lot of clients that I've worked with where will redo their house or just a room several times over the years just because it's fun to change, and and that is that is a huge luxury. The other thing I think it's really important to remember about design or when you when you are approaching your own home, is that really it should say something about yourself, and and I think that's an opportunity not to be missed to communicate something that you feel is personal that that registers with with something authentic in you and you know there are a lot of clients who might call me and ask um well to make their home look like their favorite vacation spot or their hotel or and and i i don't really love doing that and there's no shortage of designers who can do that i i think what's more interesting is to really work with clients who have a love for design who have um a deep and meaningful interest in 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 sharing something very personal, that's the value in dressing a certain way, and that's also the value in dressing your home in a certain way, is that you're able to communicate something about yourself. For some people, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, an ego-driven pursuit. I try, and and I, I think a good part of my career has been devoted to figuring out who I can help and who I cannot help, and and sometimes I I. I really can't help people like that who just want to impress people or i mean obviously with with this level of design or 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 this level of art that we're around there are a lot of people who i think think about it like fashion and and it's like wearing a designer label but i think it's much more interesting if i can help people who who really appreciate the philosophy behind something and not just as a signifier of success or financial freedom or whatever it is that is their is their you know mood or goal? I, I really, I really like the idea that hopefully I can help improve the way somebody lives, that I can help share something with them that maybe they wouldn't have come to on their own. Um, and really, I, I think it's about making, getting, helping people get the best life out of what it is that they're approaching in their home. And if you think about fashion too, there, there are a lot of people who, um, you, you know how sometimes there's, there's sort of like a basic person in the office who maybe looks good in like chinos and, and an Oxford shirt, or jeans and a sport coat, and then you go to a party and they're wearing something completely ridiculous, like a funny tie or a party shirt, and just think, well, you know, you, you look so good when you just keep it simple. And some people need to keep their home simple. Some people don't have the dialogue or the, or the experience or education to, to really wear something avant-garde or, or something progressive fashion-wise. And I, and I think people should be careful about that in their home too. It's really important that I, I think everything in life should be an accurate reflection of really who you are uh, on, a, on a soulful level. Mm-hmm. And, and not just to impress People or show off or you know look like you're a baller, you know. So and and I think people make those mistakes in their homes and they end up having. I can't tell you how many times I go home shopping with clients, and and you you go into a great little mid-century home and and that's probably some of the best architecture we have in Southern California is from the mid-century. There's also earlier pieces like like Mediterranean architecture. Um, Uh, mission architecture, there's a lot of really good stuff, but I like mid-century. It's really upsetting to me when when you go into a beautiful mid-century home where the outside looks impeccable, but the inside, I think people got a little bit creative like they put on that funny tie and the party shirt and the bathroom looks like it the bathroom looks like it was something from las vegas or or you're at a cool home in the hills and all the finishes look really like slick and glammy like beverly hills i i i I think i think you have to stay close to the soul of the architecture without interpreting it directly and and when we get dressed i think we have to stay you know we have to recognize what it is that, that are our strengths and weaknesses, mm-hmm. accentuate the things that, are, that we're most confident about, and understand how to de-emphasize mm-hmm. what it is that we don't want mm-hmm. to draw attention to, mm-hmm. like you know, like a spare tire or a
1: you know. mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, Cliff, I know that you studied art history, mm-hmm. and, um, and so in studying art history, which is one of our majors at SCAD too, mm-hmm. um, you really do learn a lot about iconography and symbiology and just close observation. Um, and I'm wondering how you apply that um, in your with your clients um, and to figure out um, maybe what suits them the best. Is yeah. that, does those observational skills that you learned in art history really help you as an interior designer?
2: Uh, very much so, I think. I, I have, um, although not lately, I generally have a very good level of retention. <laughs> but I, so as a student of art history, when I started spending time in Europe for fashion and, and also I was in Europe for many years before I started working in fashion because my father lived um, my father lived in Wiesbaden, Germany during my adolescence, so when I got to a certain age I was able to travel on my own. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then after studying art history in college and then going back to work in fashion, I realized almost, almost everything that I learned at, at my university Helped me put everything I saw in Europe into context, mm-hmm. whether it was a piece of architecture, a piece of fashion, a piece of furniture, mm-hmm. and and it really helped give me, I, I think, a, a good foundation for understanding how how things should be addressed contextually, mm-hmm. which which doesn't mean that everything has to be a historically accurate interpretation of of. Whatever period is that you're interested in designing, I personally don't like that because, like fashion, I think taste and style is really in the mix. It doesn't take any. It doesn't take any talent, or or level of taste to just go and and buy something off a runway, um, have have that same look from head to toe. Nor does it take any any creativity or, or level of taste to buy everything in a showroom and just have, and, and there are wonderful showrooms here, but I don't think any of us would necessarily want to live in something in a, that in felt like we just bought the, the whole store. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think if you interpret something so directly it doesn't feel personal, it doesn't feel imaginative, and it, it also, living, living in a city like Los Angeles, everything feels a little flimsy like set dressing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think addressing things in a more personal and authentic way between architecture and, and client ends up making you know something feel more intimate, more personal, more more authentic. Um, so, you know, with a lot of those things, in, in pursuit of of that that look that is really personal, sometimes I might. I might have a little bit of a departure from what might seem historically, or or you know appropriate for for a house or for a yeah, piece of it's architecture. Yeah, it's
1: mix, as you said. Yeah,
2: and 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 I like a mixture of high and low. I like a mixture of old and new. If you think about our our you know style icons, we have like I don't know, Jackie Onassis or or a member of the. Royal family of monaco or, or Anna Piaggi or mm-hmm. you know all, all these wonderful uh, the Solsani sisters, mm-hmm. they would never be seen head to toe in Gucci or <laughs> you know not that Gucci's bad, we love it but but they always created a little bit of irony or and, and mm-hmm. approached things with with a, a clever kind of sense of humor and and I think interior should be the same way yeah. mm-hmm. I think if you're if you're Careful about how you put together things that might be from completely, you know, different time periods, different origins, different, different, you know, um, aesthetics. If you if you handle it appropriately and you, and you kind of take cues from common threads or 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 just have fun with it and it's trial and error, you end up creating something really fresh yeah. and not something that feels just like. Yeah. You bought the store, you know,
1: yeah. I'm wondering if um, your practice extends to advising people about their art collection
2: Yeah, absolutely, you know, I, I, I love working with art and and because Art history was an, was an important part of my education I think art is a very important part of our program mm-hmm. and and I I also think everything in environment should have meaning mm-hmm. and sometimes for me if it, if it just suits some sort of decorative scheme that's not substantial enough and I want I want people to love everything that's there I, I want people to feel like it registers with them in some way and that is one of the beauties and 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 privileges of working with fine art because it has the opportunity to do that however I mean I, I think if you if you think about any other industry like real estate or or how stockbrokers work there's Governing body that that has some oversight over all those transactions, especially anything that's more than six figures Well, you can sell a a four million dollar basket without any education in art any certification any Anything—it's the wild west when it comes to art. So I really love it, and I help—I try to help advise responsibly. But to be honest, I don't love the business of it because I think too many people concentrate on 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 finance or, or the investment potential, and not really from an honest or deep and meaningful love for art, which which I feel like is is more my perspective or what I'm what what, what I'd like to share with people you can't expect everybody to think and do everything exactly the way you do it, nor would I want people to do that. But when it comes to fine art, I, I'm a bit of um, I, I, I feel really strongly about making sure that people concentrate on the creative work mm-hmm. and not, not the auction prices, or, mm-hmm. you know, not the auction comps, or the idea that an artist has an upwards trajectory making it a wonderful investment or, or something. It doesn't mean that I, I would deny that I don't appreciate that at some point, especially it's nice knowing that whatever you have in your home, whether it's design or art, if you, heaven forbid, you should have a rainy day, you've got something to cash in that, that's, that's meaningful. But, but outside of that, I, I don't like the idea of art speculation at all, and I think most clients kind of want that. So so I'm more likely to partner with a good art advisor, someone I trust, someone who's not gouging, someone who is responsible and and provides the service more than the idea of of helping themselves to to a nice commission. Yeah.
1: I think the audience would be interested in the wide array of different types of work you've done, so designing private suites at LAX and like a mountain lodge and uh, North Carolina, um, uh, restaurants, uh, high-end restaurants. Can you tell us a few war stories?
2: Horror stories? No, war oh, stories. Oh, war stories. I mean, I could do both, I guess, but I... Like, I, <laughs> I was will tell you everybody a horror story from last night, actually. Um, uh, well, you know, actually, I, I, think, I, I think it's wonderful that there are a lot of designers who have, like, kind of a signature look. I think actually that's quite an accomplishment because there's so many variables in design, I think it's hard to really consider from an aesthetic perspective driving the same point home all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm really thankful if people find that in my work, but, but I also, also with that comes some trappings and every once in a while I find myself defaulting to too many things that are similar within different projects. So so for me I I think it it's it's really important as a creative person that I'm exploring a different aesthetic every time I do something for somebody. But but really as designers and and I and I think a lot of designers need to be reminded of this, what we're doing is providing a service. We are not this is not a vehicle to, to manifest our own creative agendas. Mm-hmm. And if you don't respect the client and what the client is saying, what the client needs, what the client what the client wants, and you, you're only listening to your own creative voice, I, I think eventually your practice will suffer. Mm-hmm. So so it's really important to me not only creatively but also from a service perspective that I look at every single project in, in a fresh way every time and I really try to concentrate on, on understanding and getting to know my client well enough that I can create something unique and special for them. That is the privilege of, of doing this creative work. The privilege is not, is not to get to see my work over and over again playing out in the same way, nor, nor do, I, do I do anything just for the sake of publishing. In fact, I never lead with that because it's a client's home. It's their private little sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, w- I would never push them to publish for my benefit. If mm-hmm. they're really excited and, and, and want to share it, that's great. Mm-hmm. But but it really isn't about me if it is. And, and I, I want to make sure it's not about me when it comes to the publishing as well, because mm-hmm. I, I think oftentimes a lot of people concentrate on peripheral things and not really the substance of the work. So that's, that's also one way I try to distance myself from that trapping because I, I don't really like it. There are a lot of people who, who I think um, find that very productive being, being just hammering a, a, a point of branding home mm-hmm. or, or creating some sort of signature look and, and, and kind of exploiting that a bit. I do think it's important to exploit every inspiration you have creatively, but I really don't believe in 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 constantly defaulting to the same look all the time just because it seems to sell well or, or, or do well, so I, I for me it's more I, I think providing service and how I enjoy being creative mm-hmm. than it is uh, it, it's it's not a um, it's not a task it's it's a privilege to do something different it every time. It is a privilege yeah. and it
1: is a service profession. Yeah. how important is social media in your business? Today, would you say?
2: Well, I, you know, there are a lot of. I think there are a lot of designers that I know, colleagues of mine, friends, and we work all work at a similar level. Mm-hmm. Some of them have hundreds of thousands of followers, and and some have almost zero. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm at the low end of something in between, mm-hmm. but but I, I enjoy it. I'm very entertained by social media. But I'm not a person who I think I, I don't think I have the personality to really drive business through social media because I don't I, I don't like the idea that I'm oversharing. Um, I'm not really prone to sh- thinking everything that I'm doing is so important that it needs to be shared either. <laughs> and I also feel like it's 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 a, I don't feel like it's the time in our in our lives where we should be asking for. People to focus on us. I, I think it's much more interesting if 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 we as people are focusing on what we can do for other people, not trying to get people to focus on. I mean, who cares if I had a donut for breakfast? Or and yet I see people post that all the time. I, I honestly I don't think very many people want to see me with my shirt off, but but a lot of people have amazing accounts where every single picture is with their shirt off. And and then where design's concerned, I I I like when I have something to share, or I like when I feel proud about sharing something. But I don't look for I don't look for um, material. I don't look for, for uh, content. I, I, I'm not. That's that's not part of how how I, I I work. But if I did have that kind of personality. Um, if I did have a rockin' body or something, then maybe, <laughs> maybe I would, maybe I would have more followers, or maybe I could push that more because in, in, maybe I'd have an inherent, an authentic need or interest to to, to share and, and gain more followers. I feel lucky that I have what I have, yeah. but I but I don't really post as much as I'm told I should. No,
1: oh, wow. but you know. You know, I'm, I'm always fascinated about the naming of things, and I wondered about your company, Matt Black. Do you always include Matt Black in your... Are you Matt Black? No. Well, <laughs> I, yeah.
2: I think, I think because of my experience in fashion, or, or, or we live in a world where, where it seems like affiliations are more important than the actual substance of the work. Yeah. So I, I, I was speaking with a friend of mine who has a booth here who does beautiful work, and he said, "Yeah, we just need a few celebrity clients to, you know, kick some stuff off here." Well, and I said, "I, I, I much prefer the the build it and they will come model more than the chasing, mm. chasing a something kind of model. It doesn't mean that people can't be successful doing something faster, cheaper, or with more celebrities than the next person. But, but if you have something really important to share, I think your people will find you. Mm-hmm. And, and." Of course, it doesn't hurt if someone helps boost your your press or your your outreach, but I, I do think it's really important that you that people understand that that's not a guarantee for anything, not a guarantee that it's a good project, not there's no guarantee that that's a that's an important or strong affiliation, um, and I think it's really important that that people stay focused on the work and not the affiliations. You know, so. I think what I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about figuring out who I can help and who I can't help, you know, I I think because my career started in Los Angeles, obviously I've got a lot of pe- clients who work in entertainment, but I I really don't like the idea that that I m- might be might be tasked with something because I have that affiliation, mm-hmm. so. I don't know if you guys know who Chris McMillan is. He's one of the most talented you know, hair stylists on the planet. He cuts Jennifer Aniston's hair. Well, do you really, if you wanna get your hair cut by Chris McMillan, do you want it because you really like his work? Or do you wanna just be able to say, oh, I have Jen Aniston's you know, hair stylist? Well, I, I would like people to, to come to me because they really like my work or they really hope that I can help them create something unique and special. I don't like the idea that, that I might be contributing to some sort of calling card for somebody else and 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 it might be might be somehow some weird reflection of their level of I don't know need to compete with the next person. I I don't like that. So, to, so your
1: other business, Gallery Half, does that feed your need to curate? Um well actually you're, almost you're everything in
2: my life is is kind of a a, a an opportunity to self-enable. <laughs> so, I really, I'm a scavenger at heart. Mm-hmm. I love, I love getting out there and exploring things, but doing things. Not I a could...
1: hoarder. You wouldn't say a hoarder.
2: Well, they they do say the difference between a hoarder and a collector is just income. So, <laughs> so, so it all depends on how you put it together, how you how you parcel out your collections of things, how you edit it in the end. I I just like being out there. So if I have an excuse to be out there. And I have an excuse to buy something I like every time I see it. Well, th- there's where gallery half comes in. <laughs> if I have an excuse to buy something that I couldn't afford myself, that's a really great way to, good reason to work with clients. Um, so, so everything helps facilitate, kind of some of my my interests or obsessions, and and in that way, I, I think also because I like to think I have a pretty, honest approach to to what it is I do that's been really beneficial like i i I, i'm often kind of surprised that that i that life is as interesting as it is or that i have the some of the freedoms that i do because i would have never expected it i think if i had chosen to pursue things solely for financial freedom or 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 access I, I don't think I would be successful at that.
1: No, you have to do what you I, love. I just
2: feel lucky, and, and that we that I get to do what I really enjoy yeah. doing, and that I get compensated. Um, kind of, you know, a lot of people work a lot harder and and for a lot less. So I'm always really thankful. It's all it's all gravy to me.
1: Mm-hmm. In your residential work, um, you strive to honor the soul of a house. But what do you think is the key to discovering the soul of a structure?
2: Well. I, I think, I think acknowledging how how something might eg- exist in a historical context is the key, mm-hmm. and I think the the departure point should be within a historical context. However, it doesn't mean at a certain point you can't accessorize or throw in something that yeah. that is unexpected or, or ironic, and, and that's what makes it great. But I think the core of it, it you have to acknowledge and and design within the soul of the structure, right? I have a really hard time going to homes that might be sort of Mediterranean or modern, and it looks like a hotel in Ubud, Bali, or something. I don't, like, oh, well, we went there and we really like this door and we like that sculpture. I'm like, okay, but does it make sense for the way you live? And and I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna judge anything, but if, if someone's asking me, I'm like, let, let's find a better way to use that or, or somewhere else or let's save it for another house, or buy a house in Bali and let's do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, It would but be good in the garage. Exactly. <laughs> well, and, and then I also I think sometimes people, it's it's the, the fancy tie and party shirt scenario too. I think some people don't keep their eye on the big picture and they just think about the moment. Well, I think the moment is as important as the big picture but, but it shouldn't overwhelm that and, and sometimes some of those statements, I think, are just too big for, for, for the, the kind of architecture that they might be in, you know. mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Once you said your uh, three favorite interior design-related words are collector, curator, and eccentric, uh, personally, how do you think these words describe you?
2: Uh... I guess, accurately? I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, it's, I'm not always great at describing myself. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't have my thoughts and opinions or my hopes, but I, <laughs> but I, I find that it's not always easy to talk about myself in that way because it, what, what feels important to me, I don't expect everybody else to, to think of it in the same way. Mm-hmm. But, I, but one thing I have realized in the last, like y- you know, Decade or the last half a dozen years, maybe where where there is a little more attention for my work or maybe me as a person. I I realize I don't like it, <laughs> so I I and and that people oftentimes have a grandiose idea about who I am and what I do, and that's not really the truth. It, it, it and yet. There are so many people who would rather have the world believe that they live a certain way or, or have, you know, have a fabulous existence. And, and I'm not saying that I don't appreciate my existence. I really do enjoy it, but I would never describe it as like fabulous. Or, uh, but, but, I, but, but it is lovely and, and I'm very thankful. So I, I always take those kinds of comments with a grain of salt because that's not how it feels to me. And if it did feel that way to me, I'm not sure if I would I would respect myself in the same way if, if I had as high opinions of myself as, as the press might. Well,
1: you seem to really take the long view, uh, Cliff. And I wonder, like, how do you support or how do you think that um, this manifests in supporting emerging designers?
2: I mean, I really believe in supporting creative work across the board um, because also, as mentioned earlier, we don't live in a country that necessarily supports creative work uh, on, on the educational level and definitely not from the beginning of your education. So we, we certainly kind of deify the people who make it creatively and, and, and we love artists, we love performers, we, we love, you know, designers, but, but it's not, there isn't always a clear pathway to it. And, and I think that is something that would be really helpful if, if we got to cr- think about our lives more creatively and less about checking out boxes or, or you know, yeah. meeting certain expectations. Um, I, I was living and working in and out of Mumbai for about six years and 90 days a year back and forth. I had more hair than it and wasn't gray, I mean, it was hard. Um, in fact, it was really, really hard the first three years. I, I, I was horribly depressed there, even though we were doing beautiful work, or I, I felt like it was beautiful work. And then, and then I started to really open my eyes and think about what it is that I was seeing. And, you know, it's, it's a hard, you see things that are very hard to, to process there. It's, it's a brutal place. Um, Obviously there's a lot of poverty and, and clean water, clean anything is, is, is not so easy to find, but there's still joy and happiness and color and love. And, and one, one of the most memorable experiences I had there was walking around with one of um, our production managers there and I saw someone picking up cigarette butts off the, off the ground. I thought, oh, that's great, because Mumbai's pretty dirty. That's great that people care enough to clean. He said, no, they're not cleaning. This is, this is their job and I, to pick up cigarette butts. Well, they, they, they take the cigarette butt, they take the cotton out of the inside, they boil it to get all the stain and nicotine out, and then they, re-weave, they re-twist it into thread and make textile. Hmm. I just thought that was the most incredible thing I've ever seen or witnessed, especially in a country where, where people won't take a job because they think it's beneath them, or they won't look at their lives creatively because they think they, they you know, my, my parents are a different, obviously a different generation, and they're doctors, and my siblings got a lot of pressure to be a certain way. There are only, there are only two ways to make a living, science or, or you know, the legal profession so if there's anything creative you just like well you know good luck with that but but i think the more we think about things creatively the more we approach our lives as creative thinkers i think the more successful and happy we'll be mm. because we because everything about about being creative is about doing something personal and meaningful yeah. or, or rather i'd like to think that yeah and, and it isn't just, I think, just pursuing money or fame or whatever it is that a lot of people pursue these days. I think it's an empty pursuit. And, and once, you, once you attain whatever that goal is, I, I think those are hollow victories often.
1: Hollow victories, yeah. I could talk to you forever. I love hearing everything that, all the insights that you've shared. And thank you um, all for being such a wonderful audience for us and joining in on the conversation. Thank you to Design Miami. And um, as my friend, Cindy Allen would say, go forth and design.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed hearing from Cliff Fong. You can keep up with Fong and his ventures by following his Instagram accounts at CliffSpot, Gallery underscore Half, and Inc. I also highly recommend exploring the Gallery Half website and seeing the incredible pieces as well as the simple beauty with which they're photographed and displayed. So many sources of inspiration available there. Thank you for tuning in to SCADCAST and on Creativity. Executive produced by SCAD president and founder, Paula Wallace, with original music by SCAD alumnus, George Lovett. On behalf of the entire SCAD community, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay active. We'll see you next time.